I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and you're listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania, taken from my Sunday sermons. During these times of uncertainty, as the coronavirus continues to spread, I pray that the peace of the Holy Spirit would be with you and your family. Here's what we have for today. We ask, Lord, that you would illuminate our hearts. With the pure light of your divine knowledge, open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of your gospel teachings. Implanted us also a fear of your blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things that are pleasing unto you. For you are the illumination of our souls and bodies, Christ our God, and we give you glory together with your Father who is from everlasting, and your all holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen. So this morning, I thought I would attempt to deal with today's story from Genesis, uh, including some of the insights of uh, one of the church fathers named St. Ambrose and his insight into layers of, of meaning in this story. And right off the bat, I, I, I should probably say his method of interpretation here is a little bit foreign to modern exegetes of Scripture. And, and, and by and large, modern interpreters of Scripture, and even in my own training in seminary, you know, they've neglected some of the methods of the past. And oftentimes, we try to force every text to support sermons preached on whatever the social issue du jour is. And, and I think treating Scripture in this way has negated the ability of Scripture to be understood in a layered manner. And one thing that I've noticed over the years, and something that's come to my mind recently just in my own personal private study, is that a lot of preaching from both theologically conservative and theologically liberal denominations, most of it is all application, right? All application. By way of example, I'll... I'll I'll say church has become a place where we come to hear good advice, right, about how to be nice or how to balance our checkbook or, or something like that, right? Like, come to service and we're going to do a series this week on fear and, you know, we'll do a 10-week series on why you shouldn't be afraid. Church has become a place, like, where we just come to hear good advice about things. And Though I think preaching should contain some application, it should, I think, rather lead us to the contemplation of God, and it should lead us to our participation in God. And it's in this light that I'm going to attempt to preach <laughs> this story today. And, and quite frankly, I don't like preaching that doesn't help transform, and I, and I don't like preaching that also assumes modern secular cultural values upon the text of scripture and and i think saint ambrose's exegesis his interpretation of this old testament story is is very profound and we're going to get to his insights a little bit at the end so let's turn the clock back a little bit and see what we can learn from the story of isaac and rebecca and it's actually more of the story of rebecca isaac is sort of an ancillary character that just it's kind of he just sort of shows up in the end and there's a lot of layers here so we're going to take a look so by the time we get to today's reading, a lot has happened, right, in the story of Abraham and Isaac and Sarah. Abraham has experienced divine testing, and we dealt actually with that last week. If you missed it, you can go to our podcast page and listen to that. It's called The Test, Zionstone UCC, over on the website called SoundCloud. You can catch that if you missed it. But Abraham has experienced divine testing, and at the end of the test, even though Isaac has not been sacrificed, Abraham's willingness to obey God and his faith in God 
resulted in the covenant being reinforced by God. And we talked at length last week about the concept of, of renunciation and restoration and divine testing, how it calls us to renounce something only later in the future for restoration to occur. And we also saw that faith is not merely mental assent to a list of propositions, even though faith does have that aspect. This is what we believe in why. But faith is also loyalty. It is trust. And that loyalty and that trust is something, brothers and sisters, that is ongoing. And so we move from that part of the story into the death of Sarah, which is in chapter 23. And, and, and we know Sarah is Abraham's beloved wife, and she is the mother of Isaac, the child of the promise. And in the previous chapter, Abraham negotiates with the Hittites for a piece of land near Mamre, which is, funnily enough, where God appeared to Abraham when they visited him. He was sitting at the trees outside of Mamre, at the oaks of Mamre, when they appeared to him. And that's when he ran inside, prepare the, the, the calf, prepare the cakes. And they said to Sarah, you will have a child this time next year. And Sarah laughed. And it, and it was basically, God called her out on that and said, why are you laughing? And Sarah's like, I didn't laugh. And God says, uh-huh, I heard it, I saw it, you laughed. Next time, this time next year, you're going to have a child. And now Sarah has died at a good old age. And we see in the end of today's reading, Isaac was sat over it, and Rebecca's presence brought him some comfort. So there's a lot more going on here as we, as we read only the second part of the story. But well, what I mean by that is this. So in the first chunk of the story, which is why we started much later in the chapter, gets repeated in the sections that we did read. So there's a lot of repetition, which is why we started where we started. But one thing I'd like to focus on here is verse 37, where the, where the servant says, My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. So Abraham, in trying to find a wife for Isaac, because in those days that's how it was done, <laughs> right? There was no Tinder, there was no eHarmony, right? If you wanted to get married, your parents, like their friends had a kid who was around the same age, and you would say, okay, your kid, my kid, let's get them together, let's betroth them, and that was it. You were betrothed, and then when you grew up, you got to a certain age, you got married. That's how it was done back then. And he makes his servants swear, right? Not just like, hey, I would prefer it if you didn't go to the land of, like, get a, a wife from my son from the women of the Canaanites. That's not my preference. Abraham's like, no, swear to me <laughs> that you will not do that, right? In the story, it's really weird. He's like, put your hand on my thigh and swear to me by grasping my thigh that you will not go to the land of the Canaanites, but go to my father's house and find a, a to my father's clan and, and find a wife there. She has to come from his own people, not from the Canaanites. So the servant obeys, and he relays the story, right? And he's pleased that the promise, the, the providence of God has done that, right? Brought him back to Abraham's extended familial clan. And the servant is able to complete his promise to Abraham. So we ask ourselves, why would Abraham ask his servant, don't find him a wife from among the Canaanites? And then actually earlier also in the chapter, he says, don't bring my son back there. So we ask ourselves, why wouldn't he want Isaac back there? It seems a little bit odd. But think about it like this. Abraham was called out by God. God covenanted with him, and over the course of his life, he's fulfilled his promises. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that in Abraham's eyes, the danger 
is there's a desire to return to live among the people that God had called them away from. Because we have to remember the people that God had called them away from, particularly Abraham's people, were, I believe, worshipers of the goddess of the moon. But now God, the true God, has called him out of that land from those people to serve him, the true God. And Isaac is the heir of the promise, but tied into the promise is ongoing faith, right? Trust, loyalty, belief. And that trust, loyalty, and, belief, and loyalty and belief being maintained. Because we have to remember, the promises of God here are not one-sided. They are repeated several times throughout Abraham's story. And Abraham's experience of them rests on his response to God. The same is going to be for his children. And we see this pattern even later in Scripture in the life of David. Right? God says to David, your house will reign forever if you do this, 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 and this. And what is interesting here is that Isaac stays where he is. And who makes a decision that parallels the decision Abraham made? Well, Rebecca does. God called Abraham and Abraham went. And here in this story, through Abraham seeking a wife for his son, Rebecca, not knowing really where she was going, responds like Abraham does by saying yes. And in doing so, becomes bound into and part of the promise that God made to Abraham by being brought into his family. Now the story ends with Rebecca assenting to the proposal and she journeys to where Isaac is staying. And we see Isaac, when we see him here, it says he is meditating in the field. Rebecca comes to him, they are married, and joy replaces sorrow. And it says he loved her. Isaac's posture here, I think, is important. He's in the field meditating. He isn't playing or moping, he's in prayer. And he's directing his thoughts and words to God. Now it's here where we're going to bring in some of the insights from St. Ambrose. St. Ambrose points out similarities between Isaac as representative of Jesus. He points out that Isaac's name here, uh, Isaac's name means laughter, and that laughter is the sign of joy. He sees Christ here then in Isaac is that he says that Christ is the joy of all of us because he has forgiven our sins and has taken away the dread of death. Isaac is also representative of Christ and that he is the one to whom we as the church journey towards as we await his coming again. He also uses Isaac and Rebekah as being representative of the human soul. What's interesting here. Well, it's all interesting. Like, I could send you the, the PDF of his, his entire reflection on it. It's really long, but it's, it's beautiful. And it goes way past the story and the, uh, more of the story of Isaac as well. But Isaac and Rebekah could also be seen as the soul preparing for union with God. And he spends out some time pointing out Isaac meditating in the field. And he develops this rich interpretation of Isaac's interior life of prayer as the soul that seeks to divest itself of sinful things in order to receive the grace of God. He writes this, Moreover, the clear and truthful sense of the passage is that one who puts his hope in God does not dwell on earth, but is transported, so to speak, and cleaves to God. And he uses the passage we heard from Romans 
to differentiate between the flesh, right, the state of our sinfulness, and the soul, which is what gives life to our bodies. But like the flesh, our souls can be corrupted. They are corruptible. And when we turn to vice, when we turn to sin, when we turn to evil, fulfilling the desire to sin, our souls become darkened. He says this, thus its visibility is hindered and it is filled with evil. For while it is intent on evil, it fills itself with vices and grows more unrestrained from the want of goodness. So the answer for the soul is that our soul needs to be united with God. And to do so, we need to reject the vices and pleasures of this world that only lead to our destruction. He says this, he withdrew and lifted himself away from the vices of this world. He lifted up his soul, even as Isaac meditated, or as other have it, walked about in the field. Such was Isaac as he awaited Rebekah's coming and made ready for a spiritual union. <clears throat> Excuse me. We also see Rebekah as being representative of the church. Rebekah shows us a picture of the church. St. Ambrose likens her drawing of the water with the reception of the message of Jesus Christ. Though the people of Jesus' day rejected him, the others did not, the Gentiles for the most part, and, and those people who seek after Christ will lower their jars into that water, which she says is pure wisdom, the teachings of Jesus Christ. And the, the text also talks about her beauty earlier in the chapter as well as her adornment with the jewelry given to her by Abraham's servant. And this, brothers and sisters, is a picture of the beauty of the church. And when she leaves her father's house, as she leaves, they sing, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And we know that in Isaac and through Rebekah, the promise of God to Abraham continues and increases and it expands until those who are brought into Christ will one day outnumber the very stars of the sky. So with all of that in mind, brothers and sisters, let's see what sort of application we could extract from it or what sort of lessons that, that we can learn from this. I think the, the first lesson that we learn is that we are all called to union with God. And this takes place for us when, like Rebecca, we lower our jars into the source of pure wisdom, the teachings of Jesus Christ. And we long for something that satiates the deepest desires of a part of us that tr transcends our own materiality. But we first are united to Christ through baptism and through the Eucharist. And the sacraments are our entrance into the divine life and our participation in the life of God. And then after this, we begin the Christian life of doing what we talked about earlier, of neglecting sin and vice and journeying with God towards God. Like Rebecca, we journey to meet our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we finally encounter our Lord Jesus Christ, our marriage will be consummated as he is the divine groom of the church. The second thing we learn is about prayer. In this story, and in St. Ambrose's commentary on it, we see that the life of prayer is paramount. And, and prayer is not just standing around talking. Right? It can be that, but prayer isn't just standing around talking. Prayer can be as simple as talking to God, but it's more than just talking to God. It's about a posture of the heart, an attitude of the heart, and it's not something that comes easily to us. One of the questions that I get asked 
all the time. How do I pray? How do I pray? I don't know how to pray. Some people like how I pray, so some people say, how can I pray like you? And I'm like, well, I kind of cheat. I use these prayers that have been prayed throughout the history of the church for a really long time, and I just kind of build on that. But the life of prayer is paramount. It's important. It's not just talking, but it's speaking and listening and a posture, an interior posture of our hearts. And we can, through cultivating a life of prayer, we can begin to see the providential goodness and love of God and how that's brought order to our lives. And it's important because in our prayer life, we're also strengthened to resist the lures of sin and vice that are all around us. Prayer and the contemplative life keep us from returning to the land that God called us out of. And it's worth noting that in this story, right, of Isaac's descendants, the sin that they keep coming back to besides idolatry, when you read the Exodus story, what is something that keeps popping up over and over and over again? They say, when we lived in Egypt, yeah, we were slaves, but we were able to eat delicious fruit. Or, man, remember when we were slaves in Egypt? It was pretty hard. The Egyptians were pretty cruel, and they treated us like crap, and they killed us, and they beat us, and they whipped us. But you know, we could get meat when we wanted to even though God divinely provided for them every day food that they did not have to make. They got tired of it and they complained against it. The descendants of Isaac, the one sin they keep coming back to is the one thing that Abraham told his servant never to do. Don't take my son back there and do not choose a wife from people around, around there. But like them, we often go back into what God has called us out of because it's uncomfortable, because for some of us it could mean a complete change in how we live our lives. The third thing is joy. As we heard previously, life in Christ should bring us true joy because we have been forgiven and redeemed from death. And I think that in Western theology, I think we focus so much on forgiveness of sin, and we should because it's important. It's kind of a big deal. We neglect, though, I think, the reality that death is the primary enemy of humanity, right? In the garden, when Adam and Eve, you know, were tempted with the fruit, God didn't say, if you eat this fruit, the guilt of this sin is going to be something that all of your ancestors are going to inherit, right? Your sin the guilt of your sin. Michael Landsman, in 2000, oh, you know, Old Testament times, what, 4,000 years, 5,000 years from now, you're going to be guilty of the sin of Adam and Eve. Um, that's what's going to happen when you eat this fruit. No, God doesn't say that. God says, when you eat this, you will surely die. Die. We do believe, right, that sin is something we inherit, though, Right? There's, it's not necessarily that it, it, we're guilty of Adam's sin and we all kind of participate in that. It's that we have all been given over to sin. But death is the primary enemy. Death is the primary enemy. And our freedom from death that should bring us joy it's sometimes hard for us to experience. 
And not this weekend. This weekend was a contrast to the last weekend that we had. But this la- not this weekend, but the weekend before, you know, it, it was, I haven't felt the weight of death two weekends ago that intensely since when I was doing my CPE training at the hospital where there was one week where I was just encountering de- somebody dying, somebody dying, somebody choosing to die. It just one week, it just felt so heavy and I felt the weight of that helping all of these people. I haven't had that experience of the weight of death like I had in that CPE training until about two weeks ago, confronted with the death of, of a few congregants. And when you're in that, when you're in that, it's hard to feel joy. And not even just last week, <laughs> two weekends ago, like two weekends before that, there was also another death. And there's actually other deaths here in the church that we have not even begun to address because of the coronavirus, right? There's other people who have died who are in need <laughs> of care and love and, 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 and some, some closure and, and memorial. And we're, believe me, I, I have some ideas about that and we'll, we'll be talking about that, about how to best honor them. But the weight of death has, 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 it felt like it's been there. And it's hard sometimes in the light of all of that to experience joy. But as our souls seek the Lord, as we walk with the Lord, as we trust in the Lord, as we continue to be loyal to the Lord, as we are united with him, we will begin to experience a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. And that doesn't mean that when we have that experience of joy, it doesn't turn us into Pollyanna. You know, Pollyanna is it's a, no, a novel, and they made a Disney movie about it, I think with Haley Mills I saw when I was a kid. And she was always happy no matter what happened until something bad happened to her. And then she, that happiness was gone. Well, I don't think that's true happiness or true joy. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to put a brave face. We don't have to try to make ourselves feel joy. We have to to process the suffering and the difficulties of our own lives. But the difference between the suffering that we as Christians experience and the suffering of the world is that underneath all of the suffering that we take part in and are called to take part in, sometimes not just for ourselves but for the sake of the world, What's underneath all of that is the joy of knowing the risen Christ and the joy in knowing that as we are loyal and faithful to God, God will keep his promise to us through Jesus Christ. And quite honestly, brothers and sisters, that's one thing that keeps me a Christian. Not that I, not that Christianity is, is better than all other religions because it, it accurately identifies the problem of the human condition and then applies the best cure. I think that's true, by the way. <laughs> but one of the things that I keep coming back to, confronted with death, confronted with injustice, confronted with the suffering that we go through, one of the things that keeps me a Christian, even in the middle of hardship and suffering, is the joy of the resurrection. Because it's on that that our faith hinges. You know, some of the reformers said justification is the faith by which our faith hinges. And I disagree with that. I think the resurrection is the hinge 
on which our faith depends, right? It's because if there's no resurrection, there is no justification. And if there is no resurrection, then like St. Paul says, we are the most pitiable of all people. We have no hope. But because of the resurrection, we can have true joy, even as we mourn, even as we sorrow, even as we experience the unfairness and the weight of death. We can do so in a manner that is both sorrowful and with a touch of hope, kind of bittersweet, because in Christ we have joy. And in Christ, we might not experience it all right now. And I think that's part of the problem with popular American religion is they want us all to experience the joy of the Lord right now all the time. But when we try to make people experience the joy of the Lord all the time, right now, all of the time, it makes us unable to deal with the realities of life and the suffering of life. And then when confronted by that, we're unable to deal with it, we're unable to process it, and we turn away from the faith. Anyway, all that from Genesis. <laughs> and so, brothers and sisters, let us as we walk the Christian life, live a life of prayer, as we seek divine union with our God, as we have already experienced it in the joy of our living, our, our living and risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom, was, to whom is due all glory, together with his Father who is from everlasting and his all-holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If anyone listening is in the area here in Northampton and in need of help, of food or supplies, please reach out and let us know through private message on our Facebook page, Zionstone UCC, or through our website, zionstoneucc.com. To all who have given and continue to support us during the closing of the church during the coronavirus, thank you so much for your love. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen.